So as long as I've been a part of the table, and it has been quite a bit of time, uh, we've had a tagline that had sort of some variation of a mission statement that said something like, the table exists to create thoughtful and authentic followers of Jesus. It's one of the things that really drew me to this community in the first place. And over the next couple weeks, myself and Jess are going to be touching in on this. Jess will be talking next week about what it is like to be an authentic follower of Jesus and what that looks like for us. I'm going to be talking a little bit about what it means to be a thoughtful follower of Jesus. So what does this mean? Take a minute and ask yourself this question. What does it mean to be a thoughtful follower of Jesus? How would you answer that? I've been asking a lot of people over the last couple weeks what, how they would interpret that, how they would answer that question. And unsurprisingly, everyone gave me a different answer. But even in all the differences, there were some themes that came out. I heard people talk about weighing the cost of actions and commitment, about being thoughtful meant you assume a responsibility to wrestle with and check up on opinions and answers, that there's creating room to acknowledge when things don't make sense, and questioning when there are contradictions in faith, and the ability to disagree with people in authority. So what do I think? I think being a follower of Jesus, a thoughtful follower of Jesus, is multifaceted. There isn't a simple answer. But I think it is about three important things. It's about how you're oriented. It's about understanding who we are created to be. And it's about a collective and an individual responsibility. What do I mean by that? I'm going to start by telling you about my pool. Uh, I live in this big apartment complex in Crystal City. And huge, big apartment buildings. And right in between the two of them is this gorgeous pool. Fenced in by iron fencing, this pool is great. Like, there are cabanas with these huge round wicker chaise lounges that have these lovely pillows on it that you can sit in the shade and read your book and whatever. Uh, you have lanes to swim in. There's plenty of place for kids to be and adults to be. But there's also this lovely shallow area where they have um, sort of loungers in them so you could be half in the water and half in the sun so you get the best of both worlds the heat and the cool and it is gorgeous and anytime somebody comes to visit me or picks me up from from my apartment complex somebody mentions oh my gosh your pool is so gorgeous and I'm like yeah yeah it is <laughs> um, and it opened memorial day and in the week coming up to this pool opening up, we were inundated by emails from the leasing office reminding us of the pool guidelines and rules. First of all, there's no alcohol allowed in that pool area. There is a requirement that everybody who goes in the pool shower first before they go in the pool, which we all know never happens. Um, you're also not allowed to be in the pool area if you've got any open sores or cuts. Or, and this is my favorite, um, you're not supposed to be in the pool within two weeks of having diarrhea. <laughs> but they have all these rules. And, and to get in, you have to have a key for the apartment complex. And those of us who live there, who have leases, we have gray wristbands. And our guests, of which we're only allowed to have two, they get green wristbands. So only the people who have the wristbands and the keys can get in the area. And only if you abide by the rules. 
Now, people do try to break the rules. Uh, I've seen more than one sippy cup that did not have juice in it. It had wine. Uh, And I see people push things right up to the limit, but not so far that they got kicked out. They may have been warned by a lifeguard, but then they took it back a notch because, you know, you really want to be in the pool. In all practical terms, my pool is a gated community. We know who's in and who's out. We know who gets to stay in, and we know what will get us kicked out. We have certainty. And like it or not, this is the tendency we lean towards in Christianity. We lean towards communities of certainty, towards gated communities, just like my pool. We want to know that we are in. We want to know how we should live and what we should do in order to remain on God's side. We live by a set of rules that show us what is holy and what is sinful. They prescribe what we should do and what we should not do, how we should dress, how we should act. And this has been going on for as long as organized religion has been going on. I mean, let's look at the Hebrew people of the Bible. In Exodus 20, it's the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments reads this. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do your work. But on the seventh day, the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien that resides in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Now, I'm going to kind of gloss over some of the things in that that are a little problematic, like our slaves. Uh, But somehow, over the next few years and decades, what started out as a commandment became a long list of laws delineated what actually qualified as work. It included what you could and couldn't do by way of cooking, caring for your animals, work in the field, work in your house. It even got as, as, as specific as how many steps you could take on the Sabbath day. And this was important. The Hebrew people set in place law after prescriptive law designed to give you certainty that you were doing the right thing and that you weren't coming anywhere close to breaking the commandment. I can imagine how confining that must feel. What work it took just to make sure you weren't working on the wrong day. And what if something happened that didn't fit that tidy pattern of the law? What if you had to choose between following the law and something loving and kind? Jesus ran into this very thing several times in his ministry. He ran afoul of the religious people because of his actions on the Sabbath. Once he healed a woman who had been bent double for years, right there in the synagogue. And the religious leaders were indignant, and they chastised him for healing, working on the Sabbath. Jesus responded like this. You hypocrites, Does not each of you untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to the water? And and ought not this woman, 
who is a daughter of Abraham and who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day. Jesus is calling them out for being more concerned about the rules than for the well-being of someone else. I think that Jesus was calling them out on their orientation. Jesus lived in and among these gated communities of faith, and it was easy to tell who was in and who was out. The law held precedence. It could tell you what was right and what was wrong. It was binary. If you go go against it, you're sinning. But Jesus turned all of this on its head. In the book of Mark, when some religious leaders were outraged that the disciples had picked some heads of wheat while walking through a field on the Sabbath— Jesus reminded them of a time that King David, who was one of the most revered figures in Hebrew history, broke some serious spiritual laws. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. Jesus is calling for a change of perspective here. See, the thing about gated communities is that they enable us and they almost require us to switch off our brains, our critical thinking. If we don't, we get swallowed up in the anomalies or crushed by, the, by unquestionably following the rules. For me, I saw this lived out a lot in my life. And one of the most poignant examples of that for me was from when I was in high school. I used to babysit for this family. Um, the family had a lot of kids. They went to a church that had some pretty strict teachings. One of them was about women working. This was not allowed because the Bible clearly taught that the man is the head of the household and he should provide for the family. Also, birth control was a no-no because we should trust God to give us exactly how many kids God thinks we need. By the time I met them, this couple who had been doing their best to follow Jesus and do this by the rules of the community of faith that they were in, they had, were in their early 30s and had eight children, ranging from 1 to 12. And the father was working two full-time jobs in the service industry, and the family was barely making ends meet. He never got to be a father. He was just exhausted all the time. And his wife, who had talents and gifts, was unable to use them and was stuck in the home all the time with the kids. In addition to that, they lived in a home, a three-bedroom home. It was tiny, owned by a slumlord, and it was miserable. The family just did not have joy in the way that that I would just imagine would really like to happen in a, family, in a household. They struggled day in and day out just because they were following the rules and doing what they thought God was telling them to do. Then one day, they left the church. They chose to stop having kids. Dad quit one of his jobs, and Mom got a job. They worked with Habitat for Humanity to build a home. And it fundamentally changed the dynamic of their family. The way they related to each other was different. There was a different kind of sense of joy and hope. And this transformation started with some questioning. It started with asking, how can this be God's plan for us? 
Here we're struggling so hard to do exactly what God wants, and our family is hurting as a direct result. How is this God's will? And allowing themselves to ask that question allowed them to make a transformation that changed their lives. And for us, I think a change in orientation means making room for asking questions. It means it makes room for all of us who struggle to fit in with the rule-based community. Honestly, we all want to know that we belong. We all want to know that we are doing the right thing, that we are following God's way. And I think that Jesus, as shown in these stories in his life, is calling us to something else. To change our orientation from law to love. To pivot from certainty into possibility. And I think he's calling us to redefine our sense of belonging. Our understanding of righteousness to be less about what we're doing wrong. And more about becoming more like him. And following this way of love. And this is something we can all work towards becoming. No matter where we are in the journey. To me, this is a crucial part of becoming a thoughtful follower of Jesus. Instead of orienting myself to the law, I try, don't always succeed, but I try to orient myself to love. Growing up in the church, I had a lot of teaching on what was right and wrong about how I dress, how I date, how I approach sex and abstinence and marriage. And of course, this warrants an entirely separate and very long discussion and series of sermons to deal with. Um, But suffice it to say, I was given a lot of rules. Some made sense. Some made sense then and don't so much now. Some were tough. Some of them were downright ludicrous. But not one of them asked me about my orientation, about orienting myself towards love. It was always about what was right or wrong, what is holy or sinful. It was, ne- it was always binary. What I wish was that somebody had reoriented me from rules to love. I wish they had challenged me and said, Becky, is this a loving action? Is this loving towards God? Is it loving towards yourself? Is it loving towards your partner? Is this loving towards your community? I wish they'd focused less on what was wrong and right and instead it challenged me to ask, is this helping me become more like Christ? Those are much harder questions to work through. There's no set answer to those questions. But I think that they're so much more life-giving. The rules were rough. Sometimes they hurt, and they caused hurt people I love. Sometimes they made me feel shame. Sometimes they allowed me to shame other people. Sometimes they caused serious damage. Sometimes they even changed. Because certainty in what is right and wrong in sex and relationships has often been more fluid than we've been led to believe. And it has changed over time. And the thing is, even if I did everything right, I'm not sure that that's entirely what is important. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. He starts this entire chapter about love off with these words. 
If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender, give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. I think we are being called to orient ourselves towards love and towards God, who in their very essence is love. This change in orientation invites us to engage our minds, to be thinking and wrestling with ourselves, what we're taught, our motivations, and how these impact our relationship with God and with each other. Secondly, I believe that being a thoughtful follower of Jesus is about identity. Did any of you guys have a WWJD bracelet at one point in time? Anybody? I hear some laughter. Uh, it's surprising how like polarizing this conversation can be, uh, especially around WWJD jewelry. I, I never had one myself because I kind of have a problem with doing what everybody else does. Uh, <clears throat> but actually, however that trajectory of that of that sort of movement played out, it actually had its, at its core this desire to help people become more thoughtful followers of Jesus. At any given time, it was asking us to be the incarnation of Christ. In this moment, in this choice, in this situation where my coworker Linda is acting like she is my boss, how can I be like Jesus? In this moment when I am getting on the metro and there are no seats in my car because that guy is manspreading over there, uh, how do I act like Jesus? How can I do what Jesus would do? How can I see a situation like he would see it? Answering this question requires imagination and analysis. It requires critical thinking Because, sadly, there is not an answer to everything in the Bible. Um, Jesus didn't talk about what do you do with emotionally abusive partners. And he didn't talk about whether cloning is okay. And there's a whole host of other things that he didn't say anything about. And I don't know about you, but there are some times when I'm reading where I'd be like, if you would just have said one more sentence, that would have been really clear, right? But it's not. Yet, I find in our faith communities in our thinking and our imagination and our questioning these very things that are necessary for us to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? These very things are often not valued. And we're often taught to doubt or diminish it. We intrinsically and sometimes very blatantly are taught that having blind faith and belief are more important than thinking. But if you look at the New Testament, over and over again, the leaders in faith pray that we would have wisdom and revelation, that we would be able to understand the things that seem unfathomable, to see and comprehend what God is doing. The Apostle Paul, who talks at length about law, you should read Romans sometime, It's it's a meaty thing to sink your teeth in. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that Because of the Spirit, we can begin to understand the mystery of the ways of God. And he ends this entire chapter with this one line. 
we have the mind of Christ. Look, you and I, for all our uniqueness, are created in the image of God. It is one of the very first things that we see in the Bible. We are made in the likeness of the most creative and intelligent of beings. The smartest being in the universe who dreamed up particle physics and gravity and flowers that smell like honey and anteaters and the really cute sloths and sea anemones and supernova. We are created in that image. Our minds were created as much as our souls and our bodies were created. I think that being a thoughtful follower of Jesus invites us to lean into who we were created to be. We can choose to embrace our identity fully, knowing that it isn't just our souls that matter, but our minds do too. As I was growing up in the Mennonite church, I would often hear a phrase used. The phrase was, the priesthood of all believers. And it was this idea that rather than one person, the priest being a go-between between the people and God and between God and the people, that all of the community members are equally responsible collectively and individually to serve God and to serve each other. The idea of collective and individual responsibility is, to me, one of the most important parts of being a thoughtful follower of Jesus. We, individually, need to be responsible to be engaged when it comes to matters of faith. To contemplate what we're being taught. And to question when it doesn't make sense. And to take ownership for learning more about Christ and ourselves and the world around us. Collectively, as thoughtful followers of Jesus, we're responsible for creating a different kind of space. A space that encourages each other to be actively engaged, not just observers and bystanders. It's a space where we welcome questions and we admit that we don't have all the answers. It means that when I or anybody else stands up here, we expect you to take what we say, weigh it, chew on it, think about it, discuss it in your circles and in your dinner parties until you own it or you own what you believe about it. Together, we have to work hard to build a community where we lean into the tension of disagreement and understand that we are all on a journey and not in the same place. It's one of the reasons that we say we don't have positions here, we have conversations. This is not meant to be a cop-out to get away from actually having to take a stand, but instead, it is intended to be a full-faith effort where we make space for each other on the journey, where we call each other to be oriented towards love rather than standing in judgment over each other. We hold each other to be accountable not against a law or rules, but instead by encouraging each other to reorient, to remember who we were created to be, and allowing each other to have space to wrestle and question. The idea of being in this kind of community encourages me when we can encourage one another to become thoughtful followers of Jesus. It's an exciting proposition. 
but it also scares me quite a bit. Creating space like this requires an act of courage. It requires me to choose to be in community rather than to be right all the time. It can be messy, but it can be really beautiful. In many ways, this is less charted territory. It takes work and investment and commitment. Our community stands together, not because we're all following the same rules or all exactly at the same place, but because we are all oriented towards love. We're all oriented towards Christ. We're stepping into the identity that we have. And we are taking ownership of this together. We're going to come in a minute to do communion. And when we do, it's a chance to start again and reorient to this place of love. Choosing to do that, not only in ourselves, but together as a community. It's the first step towards reminding ourselves that love is the center and the point. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the way we were created. We are grateful for the way you have shaped us and called us. Thankful for the way that you are not satisfied with letting us just live under the law, but instead that you have freedom. And pray that as we come today, as we reorient towards you, that you will meet us there. You will show us there is space here for all of us.